say about us, our hearts, and who we are apart from Christ. So God, we need your help this morning. We come to you as a holy, perfect, righteous Father. And we ask you, God, to help us. For this to be worth anything, God, we, your spirit needs to be moving and working and convicting and changing. I can't do that. Justin can't do that, Father. Nobody in this room can do that. But only you can. You're the one who gives clean hands and pure hearts. So God, we ask that you would come and do that today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, friends. So today, the goal with this message is the same goal that we have or that we aim for every Sunday. To hold out Jesus Christ to you and to show you who he is this morning. So the way in which I will attempt to do that is first, I want to expose your need for Jesus. And I'm using the word expose on purpose because I could stand up here all all day saying things like you're a sinner, you're bad, you're evil, you're just an awful person. And I could toss all those words at you and you could still sit there and not believe anything I say. So I want to show you from God's word who you really are. So with this message, I'm asking God to expose your need. I'm just a man. Only God can do that. Only God can illuminate your heart in that way. So I want to do that for you, and not just for you, but I also want God to do that <clears throat> Excuse me, for me this morning. Uh, and second, I want to show you who Jesus is, and not just point you to him, but I want to push you towards him as your only true hope. And again, I'm going to do that from God's word here in Psalm 12 in a, in a few moments. And obviously, again, none of this is possible without God's spirit making these things happen. So I want to start off today by using an illustration uh, so that together we all jump into this psalm from the same starting place. Uh, so with that understanding this morning, I want us to think about Scripture, and not just this psalm, Psalm 12, but the entire Bible as a mirror. Right? I've used this illustration before in the past to describe God's Word. So the Bible is like God's mirror for us. And what exactly do I mean by that? Well, when we look into God's Word, He shows us who we really are. Think about it this way. When you wake up in the morning, you go into your bathroom, and most bathrooms have mirrors. You look at your image in the mirror, and if, you're, if most of you are like me, you spend some time examining your face, checking yourself out a little bit, right? Maybe you notice some dark bags under your eyes. You got some crusty stuff in the, the corners of your eyeballs. All right, a couple, couple new pimples have popped up overnight. Maybe, maybe you notice your teeth looking gross, right? You even see some nose hairs peeking out from your nostrils there. It's okay to laugh. And at that moment, that mirror is showing an accurate image, however frightening it may be. That mirror is showing you an accurate image of who you are and what you really look like when you wake up. Now, once you stop looking at that mirror, you leave the bathroom, you may forget what you look like, right? You may fool yourself into thinking, you know, I really don't look that bad. 
It, it must have been the lighting in there, maybe some smudges on the mirror or, or something like that. And you begin to convince yourself that you don't have those pimples. No one will notice those nose hairs. Nobody will get that close to you, so they won't notice. And your spouse still loves you no matter what your breath smells like, right? Well, in a similar way, when we look into the Word of God and we are confronted with the ugly truth of who we are, sometimes, I would even say more often than not, we forget what we look like. Right? Think of passages like James 1. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the thing about God's mirror is it doesn't just show you what you look like on the exterior, on the outside, right? God's mirror goes so much more deeper than that. It pierces into the heart of a human being and reveals the truth about what's there, who we really are. It shows us our hearts. And not only does God's word give us the truth about who we are, the the most amazing thing about his mirror is that it perfectly represents who God is, right? So this mirror shows us who we are, but then it also reflects a perfect God. Each time we open up this book, we're given fact after fact and truth after truth about God. But here's a question. Can we really trust the Bible? Does the Bible have any actual authority? Well, to address that question, I'm going to touch on the authority of Scripture briefly. So basically, the authority of Scripture means that all the words of Scripture are actually God's words. And to disbelieve or disobey any of his words would mean that you are disbelieving and disobeying God himself. So we can trust the Bible because Scripture actually itself actually affirms that the words in it are, in fact, God's words. Right? Think about all the times in the Old Testament when the prophets would address the people and they'd say, Thus says the Lord, or the Lord your God says... Right? Even in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what's every word that comes from the mouth of God? It's scripture. And then even think about this. About 40 people, 40 human beings wrote the Bible. So there's more than 40 people in this room about. Right? So about 40 human beings wrote the Bible over... A long time. And to have this book be so consistent and so detailed, everything lining up perfectly, the only logical explanation is that God is the true author of this book. 2 Peter 1, 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. God used their personalities, their writing styles. He poured his truth through their personalities. Now, the only thing I'll add to all of this is that only true believers can really confirm that these words here in this book are God's words. So what do I mean by that? Well, in the Gospel of John, Jesus was speaking to a crowd of Jews, and he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, 
and they follow me, right? I'll give you an example for the believers in the room. You're reading God's Word, and you're cut to the heart about something. It's talking right about you. Are you witness to that? And you say, that, that is truth right there. I know it. Now, do we have doubts? Do we struggle? Sure. But the undergirding truth is there, and you recognize it. The Spirit of God dwells in believers. So if that is you, then you know, again, that these words are speaking to you because you hear the voice of God in them. So even though there is more to say, we generally answer the question on the authority of Scripture. The Bible is authoritative because the words of Scripture are the words of God Himself. But how do we know that these words are actually, in fact, true? I'm sure most of you have heard at some point about what is called the inerrancy of the Bible or the inerrancy of Scripture. So when we use that word inerrant, or when we refer to the inerrancy of Scripture, what is meant can be defined this way. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture, in the original text and manuscripts, contains no affirmations of anything that is contrary to fact. Basically, whenever the Bible speaks about anything, people, God, the world, life, death, money, children, or anything else that the Bible says, the Bible always speaks the truth. Now, I don't mean that Scripture tells you absolutely everything about every single circumstance, subject, topic, and existence. But what I do mean is whatever the Bible does say, or whatever the Bible does speak to, is always true. We are all here today for various reasons. Some are here to follow Christ. Some are here because they believe in God, a God. Some of, some of you may be here because you don't know what to believe, and you're looking for answers. Well, I believe most in the room would at least affirm this much, that there is a God. Right now, if that is the case, a good question to ask next is, what do you know about this God? What do you know about him? You may reply with all kinds of ideas on who you think God is and what characteristics you think he may have. But here is the million-dollar question to ask yourself next. From where do you source your information about God and your ideas about God? On what foundation have you built your knowledge of God? Where do you gain information about him? Does your idea about God come from other people? Is your picture of God formed from philosophy or a combination of popular secular views on who or what God is? Is your idea of God founded on your own feelings, on who you think he should be? A quote that has stuck with me for a while now, I I use it all the time, I love it, uh, was from an American pastor and author named A.W. Tozer. And he said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because your understanding of God affects your entire life. It has far-reaching impact. Basically, this is the point I'm trying to make. If you base your idea of God on any other source other than the Bible, then you're wrong. Because the Bible is God's revealed written word. And this book contains information about God. So this is where we go to know and to find out about who God is. 
So with that in mind, I want you to think about that as I read some passages from the Bible which describe who God is in relation to Psalm 12. Okay? Titus 1-2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Numbers 23-19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Isaiah 45-19. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Up to this point, there are two things we need to rightly understand. Uh, one, the entire Bible contains God's authoritative words. And two, God's words are perfectly and always true. So now with that understanding of those two things, we're ready to go ahead and jump into this psalm together. So if you would, please turn your Bible or your mirror to uh, Psalm 12. The plan is for me, I'll read uh, through this all together. It's eight verses total. And then we'll back up and we'll look at these uh, a little bit slower and closer. And I'm going to bring out some observations uh, with that. To the choir master, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Amen. Amen. All right, so a couple of initial takeaways from the first words of the psalm. Uh, right there in the heading, um, to the choir master. Uh, now, obviously, that means it's a song. It was meant to be a song. This was a lament psalm or song, meaning lament meaning sorrow, right? Uh, and then that word, according to the Shemineth, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, is thought to be a musical term, and basically it just means the lowest note, okay? According to the lowest note, And then we have a mention of the person who wrote this particular psalm, a psalm of David, right? Meaning that David is the author. So a real quick background on who David is. I'm sure most of you are familiar. Uh, He was a shepherd who tended his family sheep, and over time God made him into one of Israel's greatest kings. 
He was a poet. He was a musician. He was a seasoned warrior. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. And we also know that he was a sinful person, just like me and you, because the Bible also documents not only his victories, but also his failures. Now, the general tone of Psalm 12 is one of lament, like I said. So let's take a, a second and just think about the words uh, of this psalm, the first words of this psalm here in verse 1. Save, O Lord. Really, we could spend the rest of our time just unpacking those three words right there. This, this just speaks to the treasure that God's word really is. So much packed in the three words. Save, O Lord. In those words right there, we have who we are, people who need saving. And we have who God is, the Lord who saves. Other versions render those words, uh, instead of save, O Lord, it says help, O Lord. Which is fine because it, it means the same thing in this context. right? David is pleading to be saved by God. Why? We have to ask that question. Look back at verse 1 with me. Save, O Lord, for, or because, the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. <clears throat> David is pleading with God to save him because there is no one godly. There is no one faithful. So a question about that verse. Let's think about this. What, what was happening to David during that time that would cause him to write a psalm like this? Well, we don't have a clear answer in the text to that question. We're not given the occasion that prompted David to write this psalm. So we don't know specifically why. What we do know is that David's life was filled with people who betrayed him. Right? Betrayal after betrayal. Lies after lies. Two quick examples. King Saul, who preceded David as king, initially had a great relationship with him, but then over time sought to actually kill him. Second example, David's own son Absalom betrayed him as well. He wanted David's throne, and he, wanted, he would kill his father just to get it. So in a close-up sense, those situations fit with why he would write a psalm like this. But let's take a step back and look at this verse with a wider view, with a, with a wider lens. So keep tracking with me as we, look, uh, as we think through this verse together. Okay, to say what this verse is saying, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. That implies that at some point and in some place, somebody godly and faithful was there. And now they're no longer around. They were here, but now they're gone. They vanished. So when was there a time when someone was godly or faithful? Well, according to God's word, that happened in the beginning. Right? When he created man and woman. We think of the book of Genesis. God spoke the, the universe into existence. He created the heavens and the earth and the waters. He created plants, trees, mountains, the grass, animals. And God's crowning achievement of this beautiful creation was when he made man in his own image. In his own image. He formed man out of dust and breathed life into him. And then God said, that's not good for man to be alone so he gave Adam a wife named Eve, and they were in right relationship with God. 
They were faithful to God. And God saw all that he made and said, this is very good. It's right. It's perfect. It's perfect because I'm perfect. And it stayed that way for a while. But then man failed to obey God's rule. He disobeyed the word of God. And he plunged himself, his wife, and the rest of creation into a state of sin and misery. And this, my friends, is where we find ourselves today, in 2018. Where every person since then is born into this world in a state or a condition of sin and misery. So, back to thinking about verse 1 here. There was someone godly and faithful in the beginning. But that type of person is gone. That time is long gone. The godly one really has vanished. All of this brings me to the the first observation I want to make with this psalm today. This is it. The words of people are deceitful because people are imperfect. Okay? The words of people, of human beings, are filled with deceit. They're deceitful because people are imperfect. So what do I mean by that word imperfect? All right, I'll give you a quick definition. Imperfection means being flawed, having fault or defect, the opposite of perfect. So keeping that in the front of your minds, that the words of people are deceitful deceitful because people are imperfect. Follow along as I read verses 2 through 4 now. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So continuing with David's thought in verse 1, that the godly one is now gone... And now moving into verse 2, which gives us the evidence that shows that the faithful really have vanished because, verse 2, everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. That verse doesn't just say some people or this group over here or men or women or just children. That accusation is directed at all of us, everyone. Now, you may be sitting in your chair thinking about this, and you're saying, you know what, Ron? Uh, Hold up a second. Hold up a second here. I'm an honest person. I don't flatter. As a matter of fact, I I would describe myself as a pretty direct kind of guy. You know, when it comes to talking to people, I tell them straight up. I'm a straight talker, straight shooter. That's who I am. Right? This verse doesn't portray me at all. Okay, so remember what I said about God's Word as a mirror, right? Well, this is an accurate reflection of us as fallen human beings. This is who we are. It doesn't matter if you don't like it, okay? It doesn't matter what you think or what I think. This is what God says and thinks, and he's right. It's not just accurate, but it's a true reflection of who we are. 
Well, if you don't think that verse, again, is talking about you, then you're not believing what God has said about you. And this is serious business. Right? You're not believing what God has said about the human condition. So let me give you some just small examples of a common, some common life examples to, to kind of paint this picture for you. There are times when people ask various questions, and we respond with a lie. It's almost automatic. Like when you're doing terrible, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, it's, your life is a wreck, it sucks, and someone comes up to you and says, hey, how are you doing? And what do you say? I'm good. That's a lie. Or, well, the husbands can relate to this one, for sure. Uh, when your wife is upset, and she's giving you the silent treatment, right? And you go up to her and you say, hey, babe. Hey, babe, what's, what's going on? I'm sensing there's something off here. You look a little angry. Is something wrong? And she responds by saying what? Nothing. Nothing's wrong. I'm fine. Your wife has just lied to you, okay? That's a lie. That's a lie. And now since I gave one for the husbands, I'll give one for the wives here too. When, when you're speaking to your husband, all right, guys, forgive me. I'm sorry. Uh, when you're speaking to your husband, and maybe he starts out listening initially, right, and then somewhere down the line in that conversation, you catch him just zoning out, right? And, and what do you ask him? You say, are you listening? And what does he say? He says, yes. And then you say, the follow-up there is, well, if you were listening, what did I just say? And then he stumbles with his words for, you know, however long, and he comes up with something you mentioned like 10 minutes ago, right? So without a doubt, husbands, we're lying, all right? We're lying. Yeah, it's fun, funny to kind of think about, those, think about those examples, but that's the truth. That's a lie. That shows us our hearts, right? Even with, with children, right? You catch a kid, I mean, red-handed, I mean, doing something they're not supposed to be doing, red-handed. You ask them, hey, what, did you do that? And they respond by saying, I didn't do that. I didn't do this. What, what are you talking about? That's a lie. And you see, the interesting thing is, you don't have to teach children how to lie. It's, it's in us. You actually have to teach them how to tell the truth. So again, this, this verse here also mentions flattering Lips and in, in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, it's actually translated lips of smoothness, lips of smoothness. So we can understand flattery to mean complimenting someone too much in order to gain favor, favor or an advantage. Right, a smooth talk with hidden, self-seeking motivations behind it. We all do this. We all do some form of this. We all use our lips to flatter all the time. Now, is it wrong to compliment someone or to say a kind word? No. Right? As long as what you're saying is true and there's the right kind of heart motivation behind that, that's, that's okay. Right? So why is it so bad to, to flatter a person? Because flattery is a form of deceit and manipulation. In preparation for this message, I was reading uh, Charles Spurgeon's commentary 
called the Treasury of David um, about this psalm. And, and, and Spurgeon, uh, I liked his quote about flattery. This is what he said. He said, He who puffs up another's heart has nothing better than wind in his own. If a man extols, extol meaning praise, if a man extols me to my face, he only shows me one side of his heart and the other is black with contempt for me or, or foul with intent to cheat me. Flattery is the sign of the tavern where duplicity is the host. Duplicity meaning deceit. Flattery is the sign of the tavern where deceit is the host. So people use flattery for all types of reasons. You may use compliments to feed a person's ego in order to gain their favor, to get something you want. You may want people to like you more. right? You say nice, nice things to, to get them to think well of you. I'm guilty of that one. I tend to be a people pleaser, right? Because I care what people think. And really, I give them a compliment, but it's empty, right? I just want them to think well of me. I don't say that because I think it's a good thing, or I want to be that. I just, I'm being honest. And I want you to be honest. So behind this, this curtain of flattery is what the Bible calls a double heart. So look back at the end of verse 2 with me, and I'll read it for us. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. So what is meant by that expression, a double heart? Sounds a little confusing. The phrase in Hebrew literally means with a heart and a heart. Okay? With a heart and a heart. To have two hearts. One heart heaping up praises and compliments and blessings and all these good things. Right? With another heart right behind that one with a completely opposite attitude. A heart behind all those compliments and nice things that you say that hides contempt and hate and disdain for other people and resentment. So what does God think about this? How does God view lies and flattering lips and, and a double heart? Let's look at verses 3 and 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Who is master over us? Here in verse 3, the psalm moves basically into a prayer, asking God to cut off all flattering lips and, and, and the tongues that make great boasts. Now, that's pretty severe to think about. Right? But those things deserve God's judgment. Right? And with that, we need to understand that God detests it. He, he, de he detests, he hates lies, deception, flattery, double hearts, the boast of men. And the reason he does is because all of that is in direct contrast to who God is and what he says is good. The only being worthy of praise is God. And we live in a world where everyone seeks to exalt themselves in his place. People live their lives believing that they're the most important person in existence. 
And this can all be traced back into the heart. Human pride. This all comes down to human pride. And there's other places in Scripture that that speak to this. Psalm 10, for example. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Romans 1, speaking about people. Therefore God gave them up, them being people, gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So due to our sinful condition, we seek praise, and we actually think, we actually think we're worthy of praise. Because ultimately, we don't want anyone else in authority other than us. We want to be God. The tongue that makes great boasts comes from that heart, from the the heart of pride. So a preacher and theologian, Jonathan Edwards, described pride this way. I love this illustration. This is him describing pride. Jonathan Edwards said, Pride is the worst viper that is in the heart. It is the first sin that ever entered into the universe. And it lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin. And is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working, of any lust whatsoever. It is ready to mix with everything. And nothing is so hateful to God and contrary to the spirit of the gospel or of so dangerous consequence. And there is no one sin that does so much let in the devil into the hearts of the saints and expose them to his delusions. Inside of our hearts, my heart, your heart, lives this viper of pride. And if you're honest with yourself, you you see that viper... That snake come out and strike in all kinds of situations. Right? When someone tells you that you've you've done something wrong, maybe at work, right? What's your initial knee-jerk response? What? I, I did something wrong? No, no. You're wrong. I don't do I don't do wrong things. Everything I do is right. Or when you're waiting in line for, for something and it's taken forever, right? The viper of pride slithers out and says, I have places to be. I don't have time for all this. My my time is way more important than than all these other people in here. Way more important than their time. Or how about on social media? Let's talk about that. The pride viper loves Facebook. Look at what I just bought. Look at my money. Look at my things. Check out all these cool things that I'm doing. Look where I'm going on vacation. Don't you wish you were me? Look at me. Praise me. Like my post. Now, I'm not just saying, let me be clear, I'm not just saying just because you post something on Facebook or you like something on Facebook that you're in sin. I'm not saying that, okay? It depends on what you're posting and your motivation, right? The heart motivation behind it, right? So you need to check your heart and all of that stuff. So listen to what Jesus said in uh, Luke chapter 6. Jesus said this, The good person 
out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For or because, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, what is in our heart? What is in the hearts of fallen people? Jeremiah 17 has that answer for us, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We can't even understand it. I know that's a lot of bad news I'm, I'm laying out there, right? But there is some really great news that needs to be stated after bad news like that, right? In the Gospels, Jesus said, so remember our hearts are sick, right? Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So let that give you a breath of air real quick. There you go. All right. Again, the observation being made here is that the words of people are filled with deceit because our hearts are imperfect. And our hearts are imperfect because of our sinful condition. Therefore, our words reflect what's in our hearts. Imperfect heart reflects imperfect words. And our imperfection, our sin, requires God's judgment because he cannot let sin go unpunished. He's a perfect God in every way. Perfect judge, father, he's righteous, he's holy. He cannot let sin go unchecked, unpunished. The reality that we are sinners carries with it a penalty. For the wages of sin is death. And that reality right there leads us into the next observation with this passage here in Psalm 12. Right, so we've talked about the words of people are filled with deceit because our hearts are imperfect. And now we're going to talk about the words of the Lord are pure because God is perfect. The words of the Lord are pure because God is perfect. So look back with me at verses 5 and 6. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So now what we're seeing in these verses is a shift in thought. Right? We spent a lot of time looking into this mirror that is Psalm 12, and talking about the truth about who we are, about ourselves, about our hearts. As people, we lie, we flatter with our lips, we use our tongues to boast. So now let's spend some time looking at who God is and how this psalm reflects Him. So here in verse 5, we see God's response to verse 1, to the plea of, Save, O Lord, or help, O Lord. Right? You can really sense throughout this entire psalm an urgent cry for help, right? It's urgent. The realization of who we are as sinners and the realization that we are surrounded by people who are also sinners is urgent because there's no one faithful, there's no one godly. What do we do? 
the God-given understanding of realizing that you're a sinner, surrounded by sinners, points us to the only person who can save us. Remember in Isaiah 6, Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God? Isaiah's confronted with who God is. He's high, he's lifted up, he's exalted. His, his robe filled the temple. There's smoke, thunder, loud noises, seraphim flying around. I mean, a big, big scene, right? And what does that encounter cause Isaiah to say? He says, woe is me, for I am lost, or I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell with a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, when God's Spirit, when God shows us who He is, we realize how imperfect we really are. We realize we need to be saved. We need to be delivered not only from all the wickedness around us, but we also need to be rescued from ourselves. That's why God can say here in verse 5, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise and place him in the safety for which he longs. There is no one more poor and needy than a sinner whose eyes have been opened by God's Spirit. And if you are a child of God, then He is your refuge. He is your place of safety that you've been longing for. He promises to be that for you. It's right there. He's a God who desires to save the poor and needy and be an eternal refuge for them, eternal safety, eternal security. And you can bank on that. Because it's God's promise, and He only speaks the truth. He never lies. We can see a little bit more of that in the next verse right here, in verse 6. If you look at it with me. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So let's, let's do a quick comparison here, the words of people are filled with deceit because our hearts and everything about us is imperfect. But the words of the Lord are pure words, like refined silver. The words of God are the complete opposite of our words, which are imperfect. So let's think about that for a moment. Are there times when human beings are honest and say true things? Yes. However, our words are never 100% pure, and free from the corruption of sin. They're never pure like God's words. For example, you may tell someone the truth out of fear of getting into trouble or for the purpose of self-preservation. You want to save face. You want them to think well of you. That's not pure honesty. You may be direct with a person and be brutally honest because they need to hear the truth about in some way which they've sinned against you or they're, they're in sin now, but you've told them because you're angry or resentful or frustrated with them. Those are not, those are not pure, truthful words. 
The things that we say with our mouths may be true, but we speak with a hypocritical heart, a, a double heart. But God's words are so pure, they're so free from all those flaws and imperfections, that they're like silver that's been purified multiple times. Now, I don't know a whole lot about the process of purifying and refining silver, but apparently it is extremely rare to find naturally occurring pure silver in the world. So most of the time it's found with other metals or impurities in it. And a common technique to purify it was to take the silver and place it over fire in a furnace repeatedly as a way to purify and refine it. Each time that's done, more of the dross of the impurities is burned away until it resulted in pure silver free from any flaw or imperfection. So I want to interject something I need to right here so that I'm not misunderstood in what I'm, what I'm saying. This verse, the words of the Lord are pure like refined silver, this verse is not saying that the words of God need to be purified or refined. Okay? It's not saying that we have to purify God's word to get all the impurities out of it. What this verse is saying is that God's words are so pure to begin with that the only thing even close is like silver that has been purified multiple times. Or as the psalm says, seven times. The reason that God's words are 100% pure is because God is 100% perfect. He is the author of truth. If God ceased to exist, then consequently the truth would also cease to exist because he is a God of truth. All truth originates from God. It's founded in him. No God, no truth. Anything that God even says is necessarily true. Now I want to show you how this verse, verse 6 here, points us forward right, to the living word of God. Right? The most perfect expression of God's word is the word of God personified in the God-man Jesus Christ. So we can make that connection because the first chapter of uh, John's gospel, John refers to Jesus as the Word. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then later, same chapter, verse 14, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus spoke the pure and perfect words of God to imperfect people who lied to him, who flattered him, who spoke with a double heart. They would call him teacher to his face, and all the while they despised him. One of his own disciples, think about this, even betrayed him by kissing him on the face with having a heart that had been completely turned against him. Verse 6 reflects Jesus as the perfect living word of God. So as we've looked into this mirror that is Psalm 12, we've considered how the words of people are filled with deceit because we're imperfect, and we've seen how the words of the Lord are pure because God is perfect, which is evident in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And now let's ask this question. So what? People lie, people flatter. Not surprising. God's words are pure, they're perfect. Not surprising. 
How does any of that affect me right here, right now? How does any of that apply to my life currently? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because we have the answer right here in verses 7 and 8 as we draw this to a close. We're going to think about these two verses. And the the last observation, the third one we're going to make here, is trusting in the perfect word of God in an imperfect world. Right? Trusting in the perfect word of God in an imperfect world. All right, let's look at these last two verses. <clears throat> you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Since God does not lie like we do, since all of his words are pure because he is perfect, then we, as imperfect people, can trust our perfect God. We can can trust what he says. Taking a closer look at the beginning of verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them. So first off, what or who is meant there with that term, them? What is David saying? Does that mean God will keep his words? Them meaning words? Does that mean God will keep his promises? I mean, it's true that God will will do that. He'll keep his word. He'll keep his promises. But is that what's being stated here in that verse? As we keep reading, we see the rest of verse 7. You will guard us from this generation forever. So it would appear that the term them in verse 7, that you, O Lord, will keep them, is referring to God's people. God will keep his people. He will guard his people. He protects his people. And we know that because of verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise and place him in the safety for which he longs. And what exactly is God guarding his people from? Verse 8. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the world we live in. There is nothing new under the sun. The world and the people in it were imperfect during David's time. And guess what? The world is still a horrific place filled with imperfections now. Now, it does seem that things have progressively gotten worse. Maybe some of that's true. However, wicked people and vileness existed back then, and wicked people and vileness are indefinite realities today. So verse 8 here is a reminder to us as God's people that we endure every day with wicked people on every side as vileness, as wickedness, as evil is exalted and praised. We need to remember that we, even as redeemed people of God, still struggle with sin. And we can easily get caught up and ensnared with all the wickedness and all the vileness that's happening with us. But you need to be watchful. You need to remember who you are or where your identity or who your identity is in. You've been paid for. You've been bought at a price. And if Christ has given you new life and a new heart and a new identity, then remember who you are. Don't forget what you look like. 
Violence happening everywhere. I'll give some examples. Pornography, right? So we live in a world that promotes self-satisfaction and pleasure that comes from sexually immoral sources, right? Like adultery, homosexuality, premarital sex. This world loves to pervert God's good gifts of marriage and sex. Women and men's bodies are showcased everywhere, right? To satisfy lust, the lust of our hearts. Another example, the whole issue of gender identity. People praise one another for changing God's design. Think about divorce and how it's glorified today. Don't want to be married anymore? It's fine. Go get somebody else. Think about drugs and and the impact it has on people and and their families. And people love doing, doing drugs, doing that stuff. But also think back to what verse 8 says. That on every side, the wicked prowl. I can't help but think when I read that verse, it reminds me of the verse that's in 1 Peter 5, where it describes the adversary, the devil, as prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's a reality for us. Satan seeks to devour and destroy and create division. You can't just think or believe he's not real, okay? That's his goal. So what hope do we have in a a world like this? We're surrounded by wicked people. Our, Our very own hearts are wicked. We're imperfect. What hope do we have? This is why we need Jesus. Because it is only through the gospel, the good news about him, that he came for sinners like you and me, imperfect people, taking our punishment, taking the full force of God's wrath in our place by dying a terrible death on a cross, and then was raised back to life, defeating sin, defeating death, so that now, because of God's grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, my perfect Savior, I can be reconciled to God. And it doesn't matter how imperfect I am, because He's 100% perfect all the time. We have hope in Christ. As we live here in this imperfect world, we must continue to trust the perfect word of God, Jesus Christ. He's our only hope. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we want to give you thanks this morning for your perfect son. the the lamb who was slain on our behalf, the perfect sacrifice. God, thank you for saving people like us. Thank you that you're a God that doesn't just judge our imperfections and and gives us no hope. But you're so gracious that you do give us hope in your Son. Despite our imperfections, despite our sin, You show us who we are, God, and then you show us who you are. And Lord, that that is amazing. It is amazing to have salvation. It is amazing to be given a new heart, a new identity. So God, help us today as we go out. Help us to remember what we look like. And even more, Lord, help us to remember who you are and what you're like. 
We ask for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.